You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hi, everyone. I have a confession. I think I got into all this energy and climate stuff to impress a girl. Actually, no, I'm, I'm sure I did. I was in grad school for molecular biology at the time, but looking for a change. She was working in utilities and environment and told me about all this stuff I'd never heard of, like offshore wind farms or bioplastics or taking CO2 from the air and pumping it into rocks. That one, now known as carbon capture and storage, sounded particularly out there to me. The more I looked into this stuff, the more interested I got. So fast forward a few months, I found myself interviewing for a job with New Energy Finance, or NEF, a London-based research and analytics startup whose U.S. operation was two guys working out of a tiny rented office in Alexandria, Virginia. The person interviewing me was Ethan Zindler, who happens to be today's guest. So I got the job, and Ethan and I have worked together for about 13 years at what is now Bloomberg NEF, or BNEF, where he is the head of Americas. Over this time, we've seen the industry go through a lot of changes. Just one example, in 2007, when I started, there was 19 gigawatts of wind and solar online in the U.S. In 2019, there were 259 gigawatts. Today, we'll get into the many changes that have happened in the U.S. over the past decade and a report he and his team did in collaboration with the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, or the BCSE, titled Sustainable Energy in America Factbook 2020. Good news, the report this week is available to everyone, not just BNF clients. You can get it at bcse.org. And before we get into it, a reminder that BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. If you like the show, please go ahead and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Oh, and the girl? I think she was impressed. I'm still not sure. But we're about to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary. I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Ethan, thanks for coming in. Great to be here. To start us off, can you just tell us a little bit about the project itself? Sure. So the uh, fact book is something we've now done for eight years in partnership with the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. Uh, The BCSE is a Washington-based organization that is basically a coalition of energy efficiency companies, uh, renewable energy companies, uh, gas companies, and other similar organizations that are focused on lower carbon power generation overall. And the report, I should note, is free to everybody and encourage people to download it at uh, www.bcse.org or on our website at bnef.com. It's not behind any kind of a payroll. So I read this report and I must admit, when I went into it, I thought it was going to be pretty boring. It's a fact book of what's happened in the U.S. over the last 10 years. I thought it was just going to say renewables have grown. Yippee. Great. But I was quickly turned around. I started to make a note of all the many areas that have changed. And I can't put in a list of 16 areas that have changed. Can you talk a bit about what has changed and what has happened in the last 10 years? Well, First, Mark, I mean, I don't know when last time you came to the United States was, but like facts are kind of cool now. 
here in okay. the US. Okay. Oh, so, right, right. Um, and actually being <laughs> all real, the fashion. Yeah. yeah. So being real facty is actually pretty sexy. So you know, <laughs> I, I would say you know, okay, we you know, so the ambition of this report is to provide a great deal of data and information about what is going on in the U.S. market. And one of the main reasons is because we feel like that there is a lot of misinformation or even disinformation mm. out there, and that's the goal. But yes, there's lots of really, I think, extremely interesting things because um, the report is usually, it's an annual report. It still is, but we very conveniently just came to the end of a decade. So we tried to cast a, a little longer view back. And if you look at how much has occurred in the United States in the last 10 years in the areas of what we call in this report sustainable energy, but also renewable energy, energy efficiency, advanced transportation, all these things, it, it's pretty remarkable. It really um, is. It, it's incredible how much has changed. And you and I know, because you know, we were working together 10 years ago in Washington, and there was a lot going on, but, um, but you know, the transformation that's taken place in the U.S. energy sector has been really, really quite dramatic. I remember when I started at NEF, when we were back in, when we were a startup, I met our CEO, our founder, at a at a meeting from ACOR, the American Council on Renewable Energy, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. And it was called their phase two meeting. Um, and I think it was phase two of going from like experimental into like commercialization of renewable energy. I think, what phase are we in now? Uh, like 27? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> like we're definitely, I mean, you know, exactly. It was trying to go from like, you know, we're at the, at the edges and the kind of pilot scale or demonstration scale to entering the market. And then that certainly happened during the decade. And then we really entered another phase where we're seeing, you know, a lot of these things take place really driven for economic reasons mm -hmm. and the cost competitiveness, which is legitimate. And so, you know, if you take something like solar, there was less than a gigawatt of solar online in the United States a decade ago, we are at 75 gigawatts now. Um, you know, the amount of wind capacity has tripled over that period of time. Um, and then on the flip side, if you look at how much there's been decarbonization in terms of coal coming offline, you know, we used to get about half our power from coal. Mm -hmm. 2019 is probably about 24% of our power came from coal. I think the thing that for me at least is interesting, and of course what makes it fun for us to work in this industry, is that you know, the traditional thought about energy as well, okay, do changes do occur, but they take a long time and you got to be patient. You got to think in right. decades, et cetera. I mean, this decade has proven that that is just not true. Things can just turn on a dime very, very quickly. Yeah. I just, as I mentioned in the beginning, I started to take notes of things that have changed. And my first assumption was that, yeah, the world looks roughly the same or the U.S. at least looks roughly the same, but no, it's very different. I can't remember the last time I've used, you know, a, a filament light bulb, for example, or... I take Uber everywhere. Yeah, go absolutely. on. I mean, take your pick. Um, yeah, no, and or you know, electric vehicles. Ten years ago, right. basically, you couldn't buy one. There's about 44 choices for American consumers to buy electric vehicles. That's pure electrics. You can buy a plug-in hybrid electric car if you if you really you want to you know nerd out. You can get like a you know, fuel cell hydrogen car. There's those are unusual, but it's possible. Many cars. I'll let you put some biofuels in the tank too if that's what you want to do. So. The number of choices for consumers uh, when it comes to transportation is obviously dramatically expanded. Um, but one of the points we also try to make in the report is that, you know, we call it the quote unquote empowered consumer, where mm -hmm. you look at all different types of, of areas where consumers now have choices that they didn't have before. Transportation is just one of them. 
homeowners have different choices. Um, businesses have more choices. Even Everybody in terms of what choices. type of power to buy. Absolutely. You can, you know, yeah. and, and how you want to buy it. So, right. you know, do you want to put a PV system on your roof or do you want to sign on to be part of a community solar deal where you buy some of the solar that's produced locally? Or do you want to just buy it through your utility by paying some kind of a green, you know, premium on that? And of course, companies have the same opportunities as well and they can sign direct contracts. Um, with large producers, and we saw another another you know uh, record for corporate PPAs that were signed last year as well. So, consumers have been very much empowered in all of this. And I guess you know within the Washington context, one of the things that I really do try to emphasize in this report is, guess what? It turns out that actually this is also cheaper, mm. and that's something that I think there's still very often this sort of false dichotomy perpetuated that like. Dirty energy is cheap energy. Right. Clean energy got to pay a little bit more, <laughs> but that's just not true. If you look at if you look at how costs have come down in the U.S. and to be clear, before anybody you know out there in podcast world you know complains and says that I'm oversimplifying, yes, that's not just because of renewables. That's because of gas too. To Definitely, be clear, gas is really cheap. In the what was States. the peak? Fourteen dollars per MBTU. Yeah, and now they can barely get over two. Yeah. So yeah, and that you know, and low and holding by the way, like doesn't look like it's going up anytime soon, especially since we didn't really have much of a January in terms of weather. So the prices have been pretty flat. So going back again, I remember every year, almost I guess every year, we in the office would get nervous that the PTC or the production tax credit was going to expire, and it always seemed to you know keep on going. You had a line in the in the report that said there was a great confluence of technology innovation, policy, and economies of scale. Which of those three do you think had the greatest impact? Well, definitely a combination of all of them, but uh, it's a really good question. I mean, one point to make is that, you know, the United States, we don't do like long-term policy planning right. like pretty well at all. So 10 years ago, it wasn't like, you know, in Washington, they sat down, they said, we have a national <laughs> you know, energy strategy. We're going to cut our emissions by this much. We're, you know, going to take uh, about half the coal fleet offline. We're going to do all these. None of that happened. Right. Um, yeah, there was some federal legislation, and I could argue that the um, the stimulus bill that was passed at the end of the prior decade made a huge impact. But it frankly wasn't its main goal wasn't like to think long term about U.S. energy security and to get people working, really, right? right? It was to get people working. Yeah. So those things contributed, and I would say that the stimulus bill plus the state level mandates for renewables, kind of, and and by the way, state level mandates for energy efficiency, it should be pointed out too. Those really kind of got some momentum going, and then economies of scale kick, kicked up, frankly, because in part because the Chinese were like, wow, ooh, mm -hmm. U.S., that's a big market. Let's export there. And so, boom, suddenly you have a massive scale-up of battery manufacturing and photovoltaic manufacturing in China to serve the U.S. market prices, and not just the U.S. market, but others. Prices came down, so that's your economies of scale kind of story. And then by you know, two-thirds of the way through the decade and towards the end, you have legitimate price competition. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's a combination of all things, but I think you could probably say the policy really did help spark stuff. And then you got economies of scale. And along the way, there's been technology innovation, but I do think it's worth, you know, noting that, like, you and I remember back in the, the, the heyday where people were raising venture capital for all kinds of stuff, and that those days are long over. Right. And there were innovations, but economies of scale are really what drove a lot of, of, of the progress that we've seen. At our summit over the past couple of days, I heard venture capital for quote unquote clean tech is back up. Is that right? There's definitely some renewed interest. And I think, you know, but VCs have so many scars from money lost the first time around sure. that usually the first criteria is like, okay, can we invest in this uh, in a way that won't, you know, in 
two years require this company and us to try and raise like a half a billion dollars for them to go demonstrate the technology out in the desert somewhere. Mm -hmm. So if it's something that's simpler than there, and you know, and it's more plug and play or 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 um, software oriented, then I think they're more there. I'm smiling because it just reminds you of the areas that I used to cover as an analyst. You know, geothermal and carbon capture and stores, which are big projects that, in a lot of cases, cost tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to test. Can you talk about some of the things that didn't pan out over the decade? It's a really good question. And, and um, as you know, 10 years ago, we as a firm at Bloomberg NEF were interested in all the potential new technologies. And we frankly, from a sort of resources perspective, we're spending as much time probably thinking about biofuels as we were about geothermal and CCS and all these other things. There was certainly no guarantee. It, was, it wasn't clear then that you would have a couple technologies on the renewable side be the biggest ones that would emerge. Mm-hmm. It also wasn't clear at all about how important the fracking revolution was going to be and the fact that we'd boost our natural gas production by 50% in yeah. 10 years. So there were a lot of things that weren't clear. And I would say, though, yeah, I mean, like geothermal has not gone in, in the way that I think people might have liked. Slow and steady. Um, biofuels had a moment where basically they built enough capacity to serve 10% of the gasoline market mm-hmm. so they could replace what was an additive called MTBE. Um, and policy s- driven. Policy driven. And then yeah. since then, not so much interesting stuff. I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, a few things around the edges, but not nearly as much. So yeah, that hasn't panned out. And then of course, um, CCS is one of those things where, you know, I, I think CCS is sort of having a moment again. And it seems and, to be. And, yeah. and it's because, um, it's, it's actually, frankly, largely because the federal government has put in place a pretty generous tax credit, which I think a lot of the folks in the industry are hoping will drive some real scale up. But yeah, CCS, maybe one of the classic technologies that required billions of dollars of investment and people just weren't willing to kind of take the plunge on it. In 2019, we saw basically a form of all of these things, all these dynamic changes happen in some shape or another. Can you describe some of the major changes just last year? Sure. So, you know, and I'm, I'm going to look down at my cheat sheet a little bit here because I can't remember every single fact that <laughs> There occurred. really were a lot. But there, yeah, certainly were. But I, and I would think the one point I would make about 2019 was that, you know, we've now done this fact report for eight years. And again, like I said, we, we do it in Washington. We release it in Washington. We want people to understand what the facts are. And there is a larger narrative about decarbonization and transformation and empowerment of consumers. But every year there's like different things that like kind of are slightly off trend, you know, something doesn't exactly happen within that grander scheme of sort of larger trends I was saying, and you kind of have to explain it. Last year was interesting, though, because basically almost everything happened on trend. So basically, we saw, you know, on the coal side, we saw 13% less coal generation from the year prior, so a pretty steep decline. Um, We saw U.S. power sector emissions again decline. Um, We saw total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions decline just a little bit year on year as well. We saw increasing competitiveness for energy uh, storage projects paired with solar. Um, We saw wind go past um, hydro in terms of total generation as a contributor. We saw increasing energy productivity, and this is something we try and highlight every year in the report, which is very, very simple metric, which is just like, how much does the U.S. economy grow and how much does our primary energy consumption grow? And mm-hmm. the answer is pretty often the economy grows and primary energy consumption stays the same or goes down. And in fact, basically, the GDP grew at a much greater rate uh, over the course of a decade than it did, than energy consumption did. And last year, energy consumption actually ticked down a little bit. So, so that- five, of ten last, five of ten last year, sorry to finish, but just yeah. five of ten last years, energy consumption has gone down. 
year on year. But in each of the last 10 years, the U.S. economy has grown. Can you, can you explain that a bit? Does that mean we're just getting more efficient? Yeah. How? The, sort of the you know, good news, and I'm making, I'm making air quotes <laughs> air here. Air quotes, there you go. Um, but the good news is that you know Americans and the American economy is unbelievably profligate in terms of how much energy we consume per person. We use a lot. We use a ton. Mm-hmm. I mean, more than anybody in the world. So by a long shot, yeah, by a long shot. So what that means is that you know not only is there low hanging fruit, there's like you know I don't you know a massive harvest of watermelons all over the ground <laughs> to be scooped up for the uh, for the energy efficiency sector. And so, yeah. in many ways, we're still just getting started on all of this. So you know, for instance, in the last decade, we've put, you know there's about a billion LED bulbs that have been installed, and that's sort of I always light bulbs are easy because people can kind of get their heads around yeah, and understand sure. them compared to none a year ago. And that's cutting energy consumption massively. But we're still only replaced about half the light bulbs in the U.S. There's all kinds of opportunities going forward really? to do that. Really? Only replaced half? Only about half. And I can't remember the last time I've seen a filament bulb in a store. I mean, still, there's, you know, people have, the bulbs last a long time. They have them on the shelves for years. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. They're old bulbs, you know. Yeah. I still have a few old ones in my house kicking around someplace. So, you know, that that change is going to take time, but it's not just that. It's furnaces, it's washers and dryers, it's cable television boxes. Oh, wow. Yeah, some people still watch cable TV. And, <laughs> um, you know, all, all those kinds of things that are being swapped out. And and to be clear, you know, you, everyone can pat themselves on the back as this is some sort of great, you know, decarbonization effort. But in many cases, it's business owners and, and, and homeowners just trying to cut their monthly costs. Uh, and along those lines, you know, we found that over the decade, the percentage that homeowners are spending on energy is like the lowest it's been in like 40 years. And they seem to be the biggest winners in the past decade. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, consumer, you know, consumer retail, retail electricity prices have definitely not fallen as much as wholesale power prices, but they will continue to fall, especially as U.S. utilities are supposed to pass through the value of a tax cut that the Trump administration gave it uh, last year. Um, and that'll continue. And but generally speaking, yeah, consumers pay less. We, you know, we have some of the least uh, costly, um, you know, energy in the entire world uh, on multiple levels. Because cheap natural gas, now plentiful oil production in the U.S. and gasoline prices that aren't high, and then electricity prices that have been driven down by cheap gas prices. So let's flip it a bit. Costs of all technologies have decreased over the past decade, right? And Companies used to do okay by getting relatively high tariffs for their electricity or hydrocarbons. Who is winning now yeah. in this current market? So that's a really good question and definitely something that we probably hear more from clients these days, which is like, how do I make a buck? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's not a, you know, that's not a crazy, it's not a crazy question because, you know, with this sort of relentless push down on power prices. Uh, particularly in the electricity sector, it's hard for folks to make money in many cases. We are definitely seeing new models in terms of how energy gets sold. But I do think it's not a it's not a sort of I can't sort of blow that question off. I think that one of the things that in the medium to long term in the U.S. that's going to have to be thought about is how can you restructure power markets in a way so that people do get compensated? Because it's it's all well and good that we're in this period of sort of steep power price decline. But at the, eventually, if you want to continue to see people, you know, participating in terms of building new projects and stuff, then you're going to need to make sure that they can earn a rate of return so they can keep investing. All that said, a small asterisk I put on that is that I think in the U.S., 
traditionally, when we, especially when we think about renewable development and even, you know, power and, and even fossil fuel development, we have this great tradition of independent power producers, mm -hmm. the sort of, um, you know, the cliched wind farm cowboys, you know, these independent <laughs> firms that were going out. And, huh? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, signing deals and whatever. Those guys are usually backed by private equity money. And those investors expect pretty high rates of return on the projects. Those guys in particular are facing, you know, some real headwinds at the moment. But that doesn't mean that you can't have a big utility who wants to earn a much lower rate of return come in and develop. And that's what we're definitely starting to see, not just with like domestic utilities like the Southerns and the Dukes and the others, but also international players like Enel and some of the others who are coming over and they make a lot of money, cash flow off of other operations. They don't need to earn 10 to 15% rate of return on a wind or solar project. They'll take, you know, in the 5 to 10%, maybe even a little lower. So the market's going to change mm -hmm. as a result of that. But yeah, it's, it's hard out there for some of the wind farm cowboys of yesteryear. So is that what you see for the next 10 years is we'll see more and more international players coming in. Where are the opportunities in the next 10 We're years? We're definitely seeing more international players come into renewable development. There's still plenty of opportunities for domestic players for energy efficiency retrofits, you know, mm -hmm. and that stuff, that's local work, you know, that has to be done. The installation of PV modules on people's roofs, again, like there's no reason you need to be owned by uh, an international conglomerate or even like a Tesla. But, you know, there's are, there are those opportunities, I think, out there. Um, you know, we, we do think that these, the report itself, to be clear, and, and uh, is all backward facing. But what it doesn't have is any forward-looking views uh, because we, we wanted to keep it just fact-based. So this is my opinion, which is, you know, we are optimistic. We think we're going to see actually one of the very strongest years for renewable build this year. And we think we're going to have a good couple of years going forward. Do you foresee any black swans or, or big changes in the next decade? I that, guess that's the definition of black swan. Yeah. You can't see it, but hey. Black swans, uh, black squirrels, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's hard, to, maybe more likely black squirrels. I mean, in the sense that you don't, I think that a lot of the trend, there's a lot of momentum here mm -hmm. um, that's gone on um, that's going to be pretty hard to turn back. And if, if you need any sort of proof of that, maybe look at the last couple of years. I mean, from a policy perspective, the Trump administration has tried to do kind of whatever they can to support the coal industry, and yet the amount of coal generation dropped really sharply last year. The number of coal plants that say they're retiring is definitely not easing up. There's like another 25 gigawatts of coal that said that they're going to um, retire over the next five years. So I take that as sort of proof that there is a kind of momentum here that really isn't going to get knocked off course, at least by policy. I guess there are other questions about other things that, that could come up. Um, as we go forward. And of course, you know, you never know. Uh, certainly the coronavirus as we speak is a scary thing and who knows what kind of effect that can have on markets and things like that. And there's trade, but, but generally I think it's going to be hard to kind of stop the momentum we've seen. I think I have one more question for you. You run the, the Americas for BNF, not just the U.S. Are you seeing what's happening in the U.S. happen in other markets as well, or is it unique to the U.S.? Good question. So I'll maybe not try to go country by country because it'll take too long. But I mean, I think Canada is an interesting case where we're definitely seeing a lot of things go on. However, the Canadian power sector in particular is already pretty decarbonized because they get so much hydroelectric uh, right. power to begin with. Where coal is still prevalent, um, which is out in the um, province of, um, of Alberta, um, they are actually also, we're seeing a lot of transition underway, although some political challenges out there. 
The rest, if you look further south, Mexico has traditionally been one of the hottest markets that we've seen, but the current government is definitely raising some problems for the industry down there. And then across the rest of Latin America, Brazil is a fascinating one, I would just say, to keep an eye on because suddenly, like almost overnight, there's a couple gigawatts of distributed solar that's just like, boom, popped up. And and that's a market that we just, you know, it's just come out of nowhere to some large degree. So that's one that we'll have to see. Um, but they're, they're, you know, the, the story of LAT-IM is obviously very different from the U.S. and sure. Mexico because these are middle-income developing countries, potentially with much faster growth. You know, we don't really have actual top-line growth in electricity demand in the U.S. It basically flat has been for a decade. And Canada's not that different either. Ethan, thanks for coming in. Sure, thank you. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.